0: the Irwin family. Thank God. We, the Lord's just given us such a great fall, so grateful for it. Now, we are going to take a little sabbatical from our series, which we began early in the year, The Commands of Christ, and uh, we'll see about coming back to that. But beginning next week, we're going to have a series, uh, nine weeks or so, on the early life of Christ. It's uh, based on the first three chapters of the amazing book of Luke, and we're calling it "From the Cradle to the Crown." I'm looking forward to it so much, and I think it's very appropriate for the holiday season. By the way, remember that word "holiday" means holy days. That's the where they got the term, and Christmas is the way it should be pronounced—not just Christmas, not Xmas for sure. And so uh, I'm looking forward to that series. I love to go through the gospels. It's just just about my favorite thing to do. So I'm going to study it and then you get to get the overflow, I would imagine. Today, I feel led the Lord to have one more message on the Christian home. I would like to uh, preach through and amplify uh, the book uh, my book on marriage and the home. Grateful for the numerous uh, feedback, good feedback, uh, and those of you who sent bad ones, uh, I'm not thankful for that. But um, no, I am. But uh, I didn't get any of those. But I am grateful for the positive feedback from the message we did two weeks ago on marriage. Uh, we uh, we were at a critical juncture in our country's life, and It is just absolutely vital that we have some foundations of strength because, honestly, I don't think we can find it in the country. I wish we could, and we pray that we can. But uh, we can find it in our homes, and we can find it in our church. These become wonderful oases that we can just uh, have in this world we live in. And so today, I'm going to preach a message. It will be on the home on the family, the title is Caring Enough to Correct. Now, motivating our sons and daughters to pursue a path of godliness not the easiest thing to do. It takes courage to stay the course and to stand our ground without losing heart. Now, God has made it so that parents are God's agent of change. Now, sometimes it's not two parents. There's just one parent. Sometimes it's a guardian. Sometimes uh, it's not how we might like it to be. And yet, if those who have been commissioned to do that have a deep, deep love for God and a love for children, and if you are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and if you will follow scriptural guidelines, you will be successful. You will, guaranteed. Now, I think it's important to understand that some things need to change in our country. American marriages today and families today, even with all the resources, are facing unprecedented headwinds. The American Enterprise Institute, AEI, is a well-regarded Washington, D.C., think tank. A year ago, they released a well-researched report called The Transfer of Christian Faith. They did a study, actually, on what is the success rate of children going on to have the faith of their parents. And so they published it, and as you might imagine, and of course the media loves to just keep putting articles out, oh, the church is going down, you know, people are leaving the church in droves and so forth and so forth. And Don't you believe that for a minute? It's just, I mean, there's always been people defecting. but—and And there is some bad news in that report for sure. But there is some encouraging things, and that's what I want to share with you here this morning. And in particular, they are talking about conservative, evangelical, Bible-believing parents. And here's the quote. Americans raised in robust, I like that term, conservative evangelical tradition have the highest rate of retaining religion as adults. More than three-fourths, specifically 77% of America's raised evangelical currently identify that way today. Here's their conclusion of the report. If someone has a robust religious experience growing up, they are likely to maintain those beliefs and practices into adulthood. And then they added this little sentence, the stronger the faith, the better the retention. Now, there are leftists out there who say, oh, too much Bible, oh, that's toxic. Well, a researcher from Penn State University, I don't even know if he's a Christian, said that's actually a false narrative. Here's what he said, quote, The barrier to passing on faith is not too much religious socialization, but too little. Taking too light a touch with religious parenting comes at a cost. The fact of the matter is, it is absolutely vital that Christian parents are consistent in their duties for the Lord. Now, mainstream academic research speaks firmly to what the Bible also teaches, intentional parenting is the way to go. Parents, your faithful witness before your children is not for nothing. The best research experience, and I will tell you that, and those in our age bracket will tell you that, and the Word of God clearly says, if you will keep at it, God will bless your work. Now, as I begin I know that a marriage uh, a sermon, uh, sometimes a children's sermon, may not always identify with some folks in here. And for some, it's a little challenging. Maybe it hurts your heart. Things haven't turned out like you would like them to be. But here's what I know these are relational principles. And for that matter, they work just about anywhere. And there's very few people don't ha- that don't have some interaction with children. And so. These are principles I believe that you can use. And really, they're biblical. And so if it's biblical, it's certainly profitable. And so we look forward to this message this morning. Inspiring our family is absolutely critical. A loaded minivan pulled up to the only remaining campsite. Four eager children leaped from the vehicle and feverishly began unloading the gear and setting up the tent. The boys rushed off to get the firewood while the girls, along with mom, began to set up the camp and cooking and all the utensils there. A nearby camper watched and marveled to the children's father, sir, that is the greatest display of teamwork I have ever seen. How do you run such a well-disciplined family? The father said, well, it really works on one basic principle nobody gets to go to the bathroom until camp is set up. That's motivation, I will tell you. Today we're going to see seven important truths, motivating truths, I believe that will influence our children for God. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this wonderful topic. I thank you for the passage that we're going through. I thank you, Lord, that it your, your word is inexhaustible in its depth, and it touches every part of our life. Thank you for these people, Lord, who love your word, who've taken time to come out here, and Lord, I pray that you'll reward them, bless them. We've already been touched, Lord, for sure, I know I have, and I pray that, Lord, you will meet with us now, please, do a work. You're the work specialist, and we thank you, in Jesus' name. Now, all of us need to have this confirmation in our spirit that the Bible has the answer to every problem I will face. And it does. Now, it may not be specifically addressed, like to the actual T, but a principle is there. The Bible, then, is our core curriculum. And so then it would only be true that the Bible should be the textbook for the family. Now, here's what I've noticed over the years. Most teaching about the home, the family, marriage, usually begins with some presuppositions. That is, they just take experience and then try to find a Bible verse to validate it. And sometimes that actually works, but that's actually not the best way to go about it. The best way to go about it is to let the Bible be the core curriculum, let its scope and sequence give us what he wants us to know about the home. And when you do that, you'll find really a completely different narrative than what is typically in most Christian books on the home. That's why the book that we have put out is called Marriage and the Home Wisdom's Way. What does God say? I believe it's the best way, and the safest way, and certainly it has been proven to us. Now we're going to begin, and, and this is a pastor and uh, evangelist Irwin. last week mentioned the different types of messages, topical, expository, and textual. And this is a textual sermon. We're going to take one text and we're going to just kind of begin to pull on it and begin to pull out of it all kinds of wonderful things. And So uh, I love textual sermons as well as expository. So we're going to go to the book of Proverbs, chapter 3. Now, the book of Proverbs is an incredible, pragmatic book where each verse is a one-minute sermon. Read through the verse, and you get a whole sermon in just one minute. It is the incredible book. Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Now, I'd like you to find that or read here on the screen, and we're going to read it together. uh, If you have your King James Version, otherwise known as the Authorized Version, that's the version we use for our public reading, and uh, its classic beauty is unmatched for sure. And so let's read Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. All right, ready to begin, out loud. My son despise not the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. For whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth, even as a father the son in whom he delighteth. That last little phrase there is our family principle. A father has a son whom he delights in. And the reason he delights in him is because he's taken time to correct him. Now, there are seven insights I believe these verses leave with us today. Here's the first one. Correction is making children aware of their mistakes and then showing them the right way. Notice in verse 11, correction. Verse 12, correction or correcteth. Now, when we parents really care about our family, we will correct them. Now, when you go to a good, caring doctor and you have a broken arm and he or she corrects it, that is a good doctor. We say, Thank you for correcting my broken arm. Perhaps you would go to an optometrist, a concerned, caring optometrist. And then they prescribe to you corrective lenses. Why? Because you have something wrong with your eyes. And so, because they care about you, they want to give you something to correct your eyes. Why is it, then, that sometimes people feel so bad about correcting their children? The fact of the matter is, there is a healthy and an unhealthy way for eyes and arms to work, Or you could even say correct and incorrect. And so therefore, when you care enough, you correct. Now, I can remember as a young dad hearing the caution, and it kind of rolled around in my head a bit. Be careful. You don't want to break the spirit of your child. I've always kind of been full of a lot of vinegar, so I figured I'd better be careful. I don't want to break the spirit of my child. Now, I will tell you there is some truth to that statement. Even the epistles speak to that when it talks about fathers not provoking their children to wrath. But I submit to you this morning that breaking the spirit of our children is not primarily the result of anger or inconsistency, but I believe we break their spirit when we fail to correct you don't make a negative child because you say negative things. People say, oh, don't be so negative. Well, you know, the Bible is actually quite negative. There's all kinds of negative things. The Ten Commandments, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. I've heard people just blast that. Oh, you know, it's so negative. (laughs) Well, negative doesn't mean bad. It just means something needs to be corrected. To be sure, God gives hundreds, as we've already seen, wonderful positive promises, but a negative promise isn't especially bad as long as it's truth. And if it's truth and it's negative, well, so be it. The fact is we don't raise negative children because we say negative things. We raise negative children because negative actions and negative attitudes are left unchallenged. We don't correct them. We're not being a good doctor or a good optometrist. We're not fixing unhealthy things. It, for example, you take the subject of selfishness. Selfishness is one of the greatest causes for unhappiness in all of our lives. It just, it just so much is. When we were growing up, uh, we used to sing a little song called J-O-Y in s- Sunday school, Jesus and others and you. That's the best way to spell joy. Put Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And it's true. Joy doesn't come from us getting our own way, but from Jesus getting his way and then others. As parents, therefore, when we point out selfish manners, we are actually doing our children a great joy to them we are positioning them for joy. How does it work? Through calm explanation. If you're writing this down, you could write down these three things by explaining, explaining what the concern is. And then number two, by demonstrating, actually demonstrating what's going on. Say, you know, here's what I want. Here's, let me show you what I'm speaking about. So, they actually can see it with their eyes and hear it. Not only just get a precept, but they actually, oh, I get it, explaining and then demonstrating and then finally following up. That is to make sure they're actually doing it and perhaps to add consequences if they're not. And so a three-point outline there would be explaining the situation, demonstrating how it's actually done, and then following up to make sure that it's consistently done. So if I do that, then what am I doing? I'm actually bringing joy into their life because they've put Jesus first, others second, their self last and good manners now has put them in a place to have true joy. The main thing about correction is that it must be loving. And if in order to be loving correction, I have to be filled with the Holy Spirit because the rigors of parenthood are so challenging, If I don't have the Holy Spirit's power, I am not going to make this thing happen good. If we are emotional and we're upset and angry, correction always takes a wrong course. The tone and the manner that a parent says things is just about the most important thing. I mean, it's just absolutely vital. In fact, frankly, you can say almost anything if you say it in the right tone and in the right manner, a way that is gentle. God reiterated this point when he gave wise Solomon these words. Proverbs chapter 16, and verse 21, he says, The wise in heart shall be called prudent. Boy, I want to be a prudent parent. How do you do that? The sweetness of the lips increaseth learning. If you would like someone to learn then say it sweetly. That is to be gentle and be careful about your tone and not only just your topic, speaking not only good wisdom, which is, of course, important, but also in a good way. Now, there are many in the world today that will tell us, you know, there's no right or wrong. But my friend, that is simply not true. Right is still right. That being said, I do believe, however, that morality should have reasoning. It shouldn't come from a bunch of old wives' tales or outdated customs. But when something is immoral, or something is unethical, or something is unbiblical, then we should calmly and kindly and wisely, with a good tone, fully share it with our family. I have always been a firm believer in giving reasons for the rule as much as possible. That is, keeping children in the moral loop, so to speak. That is, not only telling them what to do, but why they're supposed to be doing it. For example, you could say, I don't want you to go outside for a couple hours, children. You could say that, nothing wrong with that. But it might be better to rephrase it this way. I don't want you to go outside because I'm going to be taking a nap. I don't want you outside while I'm taking a nap inside. Or I don't want you to go outside because there's a lot of smoke outside. And so for your health, I don't want you to be outside right now. Now, that being said, let me just be quick to say, children don't deserve an explanation. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they have a right to know why they're doing it. There should be times when there's no explanation. We simply expect, and they should be ready and willing to do so. But regardless, if you love them, you will correct them. That's what the Bible says, for whom the Lord loveth, he correcteth. You know, one of the most well-known choruses of the last generation in the Christian faith has been called the Heart of Worship. Do you realize that that song actually came about because of someone who was willing to be corrected? Early in his career, Matt Redman was singing with his church's praise team. He was leading it. When the pastor watched him, listened to him, practiced for a bit, it had been going on for a while, and he came up and chatted with them, and he felt like that the team was really neglecting and missing this really sense of true worship. Well, the worship team didn't like that. They were insulted, in fact, and they all left the church. They just walked off. Everyone but Redmond, Matt, took it to heart, and shortly afterwards, he wrote the song, The Heart of Worship. And if you've been around church very long, you have heard that song. Here's one of the phrases he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. It's all about you, Jesus. And so giving and receiving correction positions us for blessings. And if we can teach our children to accept correction, and if we can teach them it's their best life, then we've actually done a great thing for them. Number two, correction is not particularly pleasant to the child. And it certainly isn't pleasant to the parent. Now, my son, despise not the chasing of the Lord, neither be weary of his correction. It's weary to be corrected. It is. It's not something that any human likes. We have a natural distaste. You've seen it. When your two-year-old finds out that they can't get their way, they don't like it. Hell hath no fury like a toddler whose sandwich has been cut into squares when they wanted triangles. They will lose it. Jerry Seinfeld said, a two-year-old is kind of like having a blender, but you don't have a top for it. (laughs) But you know what I've discovered? I've discovered not only two-year-olds don't like being told what to do, but I found out that 15-year-olds don't like being told what to do either. In fact, being a pastor for these years, I found out that 25-year-olds, 45-year-olds, and 95-year-olds don't like being told what to do. Can I get a witness here this morning? We don't like it. I mean, that's just how we are. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like correction. But how can we have our bones reset? How can we have our eyes corrected if we don't allow ourselves to be corrected? These are deficiencies and to be fixed. I believe parents must be freed from the modern myth that growing up is about having as much fun as possible. I hear older people give young people advice, have as much fun as you can because, you know, there's some day when you're going to be old and crotchety and mean and sad and terrible like my life. No, I mean, that's a terrible thing to tell them. Tell them to Remember their Creator in the days of their youth. And, and yes, enjoy life, but not only as a youth, enjoy it as a 20-year-old, a 4-year-old. God wants us to always enjoy life. In fact, that's exactly what the great Apostle Paul told Pastor Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 17, he said, Please tell all Christians that it's God who wants them to richly enjoy all things richly enjoy all things. God said, folks, have a blast while you go through this life. But the command to enjoy life is not simply about having as much fun as you can, because God's more concerned that our joy results in holiness than some kind of external happiness. In fact, Everyone in the end has a better time when children, or for that matter, anybody, are thoughtful and not rude. Notice what it says, neither be weary of his correction, Proverbs 3 and verse 11. There's a weariness that comes to correction. Now most people would feel like, and I would think that's true, that this verse is referring to the correctee, that is, the one who is getting corrected. But I would suggest it's not only to the correctee, but it's to the corrector. There is a weariness factor to those that are doing the correction. Because correction takes time. It takes energy. It messes up your schedule. And it messes up your, and it's a drain on your emotional batteries. The reason the parents don't do so is because it's challenging for the parents, for their emotions. And it takes confrontation. And most people that I know don't like confrontation. They run from it. And and this is not easy, but it takes a parent admitting that their child did something wrong. And for many parents, for some reason, that strikes at the core of who they are personally. And I agree we shouldn't ignore the fact, but the truth of the matter is it is unwise to take it personal. Consider for a few moments how this matter of correction works. I want to give you three basic little uh, outline of how we can go through a little time of correction with a child. But even at that, it takes a little bit of time. First of all, we identify. That is, the child has done something. What was done? Well, let's just take pouting for a minute about the type or the quantity of the dessert. They didn't like the dessert they got. So we're identifying what was done. You pouted about the type of dessert you had. Number two, we clarify now how that action or that attitude violated God's law. Now it's not wrong to simply correct them for something they've done against your law, but it's we have double power when our laws mirror God's laws. That's double power. That's why parents need to learn with, to speak with double power. If you speak God's word, you have double strength. Identify, you pouted. How did that action, we're going to clarify now, how did that action violate God's law? Well, the Bible says in everything, give thanks. You could even quote that verse to him. Now, and everything, give thanks. That's what God said. So what you did was wrong. Identify, clarify, and then the third thing is rectify. How can we make this right? We got to make it right. We can't just forget it. Some people just forget it and don't even do anything. That's not good. Some people identify it. They scream about it. Other people, wise ones, clarify. That's not what God wants. But we got to go to the third step. Now let's clear the slate. Let's rectify this. You pray with them, and so you put your hands on them, you pray for them that they will have a grateful heart, and then you, if they're a little older, perhaps you can just say, would you pray and ask God to forgive you for your ungratefulness? And then after that, you need to go to mom, and you need to ask her forgiveness for being so rude at not accepting the dessert that she gave you. All right, now that sounds like a lot, but actually that can go quite quickly, and if you've done it enough, you can, it comes pretty quickly, you can probably do that in about three minutes. Now, sometimes it might take a little bit more. So you have one child, they're little, they're still growing in grace, you're probably going to have to do that once an hour, maybe, maybe more, right? I don't know. Once an hour, let's just say, okay? They're up for 12 hours. So 12 times a day, you're going to take three minutes and have this little session. That's a bit of time. If you have two children, now the older ones, maybe they're not as heathen, so it's one every two hours, you know, I don't know. And then the older ones, now God, so you have two children, so that's, that's even added more time. And if God gives you a quiver full, whew, the fact of the matter is, folks, it takes a long time to do correction right. Now, it may the moment may only take three or four minutes, but when you add it up during the day, so the fact of the matter is, that's a lot of confrontation, that's a lot of emotional energy, that's a lot of time out of your schedule. No wonder you can't get anything done. The fact of the matter is, it's not an easy job being a parent. Like um, the late, or excuse me, the founder of. Um, focus on the family. Uh, James Dobson said, parenting is not for cowards, for sure. One comedian said, raising kids is part joy and part guerrilla warfare. (laughs) It can be tough. So uh, what I'm saying is this, folks, uh, look around and you see someone with children, pray for them and love on them because it's not an easy task. Now, number three this morning, correction is essentially a fatherly role. Essentially, it's really the job of the father. For whom the Lord loveth, he corrected, even as a father. Of course, the mother is involved. Grandparents can be, babysitters, principal, school teachers, church leaders, all really have their part in enforcing the family rules. But the fact of the matter is chaos is going to happen if there's not solidarity on everybody's part. That's why it's challenging when some of these families try to enforce the rules and grandparents are not getting behind them and church leaders are not. I mean, it's a challenge. That's why it's important to be in a good church like this one who will support what you're doing. Now, I realize at times the nuclear family is not part of the picture. However, in the end, if it were possible, the dad is the captain of the ship. That's what the Bible says. He's the commanding officer. As such, he's the vision caster for the family. And you know, really, a, a vision for your family is really just nothing more than giving them a schedule of what to do next. That's really what a vision for your family is. Do you have a vision for your family? Then if you don't have a vision for your son or daughter, then really, what are they supposed to be doing? I mean, what are we trying to accomplish here? Now, that may sound more complicated and maybe I'm making it sound that. But it simply goes something like this. You will say to your son, depending on their age, now, son, I want you to get up at this time. This is the time you're going to be getting up. Then here's what you're going to do next. You tell them the next thing you're going to do is you're going to go in there, you're going to get cleaned up, and then you're going to read your Bible, and then you're going to come to breakfast. Now, when they get older, you can maybe switch that up a little bit. They're able to kind of, you know, maybe have their breakfast, then read and take a little time, but... In the beginning, give them a schedule. Now, you're going to get up at 6 or 6.30, whatever it is, and here's what you're going to do next. It's just giving them a schedule. Then you're going to go to school, and then you're going to come home, and you're going to play for two hours, and you're going to do this. You're going to do your chores, and then you're going to have some homework, and then you're going to have a little bit of time to play again. But it's just giving them a schedule. Now, in that, of course, we have family Bible time. So at 7 o'clock, 7 in the morning, or if you maybe do yours in the evening, depending on your schedule, you can give your mom, excuse me, you can give the mom, <laughs> the mother of the children, you can give them um, what you're wanting to accomplish and maybe ask her help. Say, could you give me a good schedule? And then dad communicates the vision and then dad follows up. It's important that it's dad. If dad isn't doing the the really major part of the correcting, dysfunction and reaction will take place. Now, obviously when dad's not there, mom has to do it. Or if dad's not even in the home, it's certainly a challenge, mom takes that up. But what could happen is that mom takes care of the more minor things, but if there's something a little bit bigger, then they, uh, everything's on hold until dad gets home. And when dad gets home, he's gonna take care of business. Now, why is this? Well, here's what I would suggest. I would suggest that God has hardwired dads for conflict resolution. Unfortunately, in this anti-God, anti-Bible world we live in, dads Hollywood makes them the play guy; they're the fun guy, or Hollywood will make them into a doofus, and Mom rules the wor- rules the roost. And I certainly believe that dads ought to be fun and have play and recreation. It's a very needful thing. I think um, it's a great thing to play with our children. That's very important. But really, the purpose behind recreation is so that we can serve the Lord better. I have a great time. I go off and do other things, but really, it's just so I can serve the Lord better. I know for me, growing up, when my dad said something, I listened to him almost always intently, and very. I was very... <laughs> Clear what he said. When my mom told me something, well, I sort of listened. <laughs> now I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that was my natural tendency as a young boy, and so I think that experience teaches us that it's the dad who is listened to. Now let's talk for a second about this playtime and training time. Now, when sons and daughters are one years old, then. Basically, my time with my child is 90% play. I mean, I don't think we ought to be spending, you know, uh, two hours with them, you know, trying to get them to do this and that, but take a little bit of time to uh, teach, but most of the time it's just play time. But each year they get older, dad time, play time decreases, and dad time, training time increases, until by the time they're basically 12, it's then reversed. Instead of 90% play and 1% training or 10% t- training, it's 10% playing and 90% training. Until the time they finally get to the point where they s- work together or they serve the Lord together because it's fun. It is a joy to serve the Lord together. It's been said that a family that prays together stays together. Yes, that's because early on we begin to really cast a vision for the family. And the dad, the captain of the ship, said, here's what we got to do. Number four, correction is a long process. Neither be weary of his correction. Weariness its not only a hard process, it suggests a long process. It is lengthy. It is lengthy for the child. They're told what to do when they're one. They're told what to do when they're five. They're told what to do when they're 10, they're told what to do when they're 15, and in their mind they're thinking, is there ever a time I'm not going to be told what to do? And by the time they get to 15 or 16, you know, they're beginning to think about being on their own and making their own decision, and some of them even kind of get a little crazy. I remember Evangelist Tim Lee said, I was so tired of my dad telling him what to do, so I joined the Marine Corps. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, okay, smart. But you know, the fact of the matter is, it is natural to get to a point where we want to be our own bosses, as it were, and do our own things. And that's certainly good and, cor- and healthy. But not only is it wearisome for the child as they get older, it's actually wearisome for the parent. In fact, God even gets weary of correcting us. Isaiah 43 and verse 24, thou hast wearied me with thine iniquities. He said, I'm tired of you people. And parents would agree with God. Parental fatigue is a real issue. For any size family, parents are caregivers. And any caregiver knows it's time-consuming and all-consuming. But when fatigue sets in, that's the key. Because fatigue, as has been said, makes cowards of us all. We need the grace of God and the strength of God to do our part, to be at our best physically and mentally and emotionally, and most of all, spiritually. We need to train for parenting like you're an Olympic athlete. Moms and dads get plenty of rest, get good exercise, have lots of fun activities, eat balanced diets, get up early, read your Bible. You need a word from God. Here's what I'm convinced of. In the book of Ephesians, when the Apostle Paul talked about spiritual armor, I'm convinced that was given to moms. That was given to dads. You better put your helmet on. You better be ready to go. You must avoid staying up too late, if possible, and certainly just laying around vegging out, watching some wacko on late-night TV. And if we want a home that's full of power, play Christ-honoring music, instrumental mostly. You can't have wild music playing and think your family's going to be calm. Now, there is a time for wild music. I I love some of these upbeat Christian songs, but we use that for cleanup time, and when it's cleanup time, you put on that loud bumping music, and you just let it rip, and uh, that's fun, but most of the time, calm, you know, (laughs) that's what, it helps. Correction can be wearisome, and it can be long, but if we'll stay at it, it'll pay big dividends. Number five, correction brings happiness. Notice what it says it brings delight. He's happy now. The son's happy. The daughter's happy. The dad's happy. The mom's happy. Healthy correction is a delightful thing. I think just about every parent would just have such a different attitude if it was a delight for them. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a parent if it's a delight? Can you imagine Brother Irwin down here last Sunday, looking up there, seeing his four children serving God? Now, that was a delight to him. That was a delight to him. Well, I will tell you, that didn't come just out of nowhere. He worked with them. He made sure that they followed the rules, they were obedient and not rude children. I think our children ought to be able to live (coughs) lives of delight like the parents also. I think parents, it's wonderful when parents can have delight, but I think sometimes our children don't have delight because they're living, for example, in spiritual straitjackets. It's been my observation, and I hope you'll listen. Sometimes parents unknowingly keep their children bound up with guilt, not because they correct, but listen, but rather because they don't correct. They don't deal with the disobedience. They give them a mere slap on the wrist, pat on the bottom, and they falsely think that somehow they're going to get the message. Solomon weighed in on that. He said, "Uh uh-uh, that's not the way it works. You don't cleanse disobedience by a slap on the wrist. Notice what he said in Proverbs 20 and verse 30. He said, it's the blueness of a wound that cleanses away evil. What does blueness mean? Well, we know what that means it's a bruise now you need to understand God is speaking metaphorically here he's not saying we should get a two by four and you know beat somebody until they're black and blue that's not what he's saying he is saying however that us sh- that whatever form of discipline needs to be such that it really stings it is bruising the point is that some hearts are so obstinate that it's Just a fact, only bruising gets their attention. Wise correction is spiritually cleansing. Parents, you do not do your children any good and any help, any favor, I should say, through leniency. An indulgent, pushover parent only prolongs the sanctifying process. It is a spirit-filled child who has joy in the Lord. Now, let me move on. And we're going to come back to this. Number six, correction is both curative and preventative. Yes, it's curative. It says we're correcting something. But I would believe that it also is preventative. Good discipline actually is something we do for the future as well as for the past. There's always an answer. There's always something we can do to what has been done. There's always a a cure. That's what it says. It's something we can correct. The father delights in the good future. He sees for his child. If he did not care about his child, he wouldn't take time to correct. He would just say, whatever, I don't care. That's what people who don't care do. They just do nothing. But a wise dad not only fixes the past, but they help them have a good future. Professions in the Professionals in the medical world know that when you help people prevent illness, it's far better than just curing them of an illness. Preventative parenting is the best way to go. In military strategy, there is something called the a preemptive strike. When um, it's pretty much uh, imminent that an enemy is going to attack you, then a defensive uh, preemptive strike is in order. That is, you you take action to limit casualties. It's a way of protecting people. Parents, in a way, should take a preemptive strike against sin because if you don't, you're going to see serious consequences on the life of that child. Paul spoke to this. He said, you know, some of you don't realize that when you're talking about sin, you're not making it exceedingly sinful. Romans chapter 7, and verse 13, he said, Do you know what God does? One of the reasons for the commandments of God, that sin becomes exceedingly sinful. When you don't make sin to be exceedingly sinful, it's like putting um, the word peppermint on the front of a bottle of poison, saying, Yeah, it's just peppermint. No, making it exceedingly sinful. That's what the Bible does. The Bible exposes the true nature of sin. A child needs to hear in his mind this words. If I do wrong, I'm going to suffer. Now, some people don't like that. They say, oh, you're putting fear. No, you're putting wisdom into them. They need to know if I do wrong, I'm going to suffer. But if I do right, I know there's blessings that are going to follow. That's called a cause and effect mindset. It's biblical. Rules and manners consistently enforced are preventative. When parents are inconsistent, the heart grows bold in sin. Here's been my experience. One act of leniency results in 10 episodes of acting out. It's definitely not one-to-one. I've seen child after child put their toes into the water of disobedience again and again to see if they just might get lucky and mom and dad won't correct them. And if you don't correct them, they'll do it again and again and again. It's not one-to-one. You'd say, well, I corrected them once. You know what? If you gave in once, they'll just take advantage of that. It's amazing how long they will. Until finally they get the idea, crime doesn't pay. But when parents are indulgent and lenient, almost in a sense they build a gambling addiction in their children. They're going to gamble. Well, I'll see if this is okay. and Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Until the child says, you know what? Dad is going to take care of business. And I know he is. Preventative discipline is not only just for the perpetrator, but sometimes it's for those in the proximity as well. Sometimes parents say, I've disciplined, I've disciplined, I've disciplined, and it does no good. The question I would ask is, it does no good for who? You mean the one who's the perpetrator? That's not the only person to be concerned about. We need to be concerned about God, and there's other people watching. And that's exactly what God said in Proverbs 19, verse 25. Smite, again, that's a metaphor for strict, loving action. Smite a scorner, and the simple will beware. The fact of the matter is, sometimes discipline is not for the one who did the wrong, but for the others who are watching, it's preventative. It's a preemptive strike. The untaught and the immature eyes are watching. You know, someone's always watching, and I think we ought to be careful to be concerned about them. And then finally this morning, number seven, correction, is good for the child and for the society. As we mentioned in verse 11 and verse 12, it talks about the delight. It's a delight to the child, makes their life full of delight, and it's a delight to society. You know, it's not really nice to let children develop habits that someday that they'll have to eliminate in order for them to be a productive, balanced, stable, selfless adult. It's not really nice to let them keep on going until it's just so hard. It's like allowing a horse to just do whatever they want. And when they're a colt, it might be a lot easier to correct them. But if you just let them go on until they're a raging stallion, man, it's going to be hard to break. I'm convinced, frankly, that many divorces start when they were toddlers. They were never told that they had to do what God said. They became selfish adults. They were selfish children. Parents sometimes allow negative things to go on for so long that the children even become self-destructive. I read a report recently about extremely obese children. I'm not talking about pudgy little babies and kids. That's not what we're referring to. We're talking about extremely obese. Many of them, the report said, have parents who literally love their children to death. That is, they love them, quote, so much, they won't withhold anything from them, any amount of food and whatever type they want, they can have. But really, is a weak parent really loving them? (laughs) Is a weak parent really doing them favors when they do that? Are they really benefiting their life? No, correction is good for the child. It's not easy for them, but it's good for them. It's not easy for us maybe, but it's good for them. And it's good for society. Everybody wins. Loving discipline is for the peace and the harmony of the home. You simply cannot allow a two-year-old to bully the entire family because other sons and daughters are in the home. They want to be saved from this little two-year-old or three-year-old or five-year-old. They want to be saved from the scorner in the family. And so mom and dad, you're the one they're looking to. Are you going to stand up and protect the rest of the family? The fact of the matter is moms and dads ought to be able to have a hold a good conversation in the home without the parents' kids always screaming. They ought to be able to have some nice things, I mean, within reason. I don't know that i put a Ming Dynasty uh, vase on the, uh, where the kids could get at it, but the fact of the matter is you should be able to have a home, not just a house. You should be able to have nice things, but it takes somebody being the mean guy. I remember one Christian dad who smugly, I'm afraid to say, said to me, he said, well, I'm really more into grace I'm really more into, I'm more of a tolerant dad. And I thought to myself, oh, well, that's nice. Uh, really good. That w- if you lived on an island and you were the only people that there, yeah, let them go crazy. But that's not the way it works, is it? We all have to live with each other in society. And I've noticed something over the years about other people's grace parenting. They refuse, refuse to teach their children manners. And others are forced to endure their children's rude behavior. Their grace? My grief. Crazy. Extended family or church leaders, school leaders have to be the bad guy and discipline the child for them because the parents won't do it. Folks, that's not good for anybody. It's not good for your marriage, not good for society, and it's not good for your children. Love, calm, consistent, correcting, are the foundational building blocks of a great society and a wonderful child. Look, all of us will have flaws and foibles, but let's help our children be cleansed from that sin. Let's help them get rid of it and move on to live productive, great lives. With the Bible as their roadmap and Jesus as their guide, we can do this. I know we can. Let me share a closing story with you, a classic story. And this is actually a story my dad told me years ago when I was growing up. There was a little boy who was very, very mean in school. He would not do his work. He wouldn't listen to the teacher. He was talking when he was supposed to be quiet. He just simply would not obey teacher sent him to the principal. The principal talked to him, finally realized the only thing they could do is just expel him, send him home. He called the parents and sent him home. The mother sat down with little Peter on the couch with tears in her eyes, said, son, why? What is this? And so she tried to reason with him. She said, son, do you know why people are disobedient? And do you know why they behave badly? I don't know. Because they feel like it, he responded. Why do you think they feel like doing that? Well, she couldn't get him to respond to hardly anything. And so she explained. She said, the reason they do bad is because they're not thinking of others. They're not thinking of God. They're only thinking of themselves. And that hurts other people. And it hurts God. Little Peter said, well who gets hurt? She said, people get hurt, and Jesus gets hurt. And that's not right because he didn't do anything wrong. He died on the cross so he could have our punishment and that we could have eternal life, have our selfishness forgiven. What do you mean, Mom? I. Uh, why did Jesus have to suffer like that? Why did he have to hurt? Well, he took our payment. He took our spanking, really. Now, she said, Peter, here's what I'm going to do. Not only did you hurt others and not only do you hurt God, but you hurt me and you hurt dad when you do this. And so I'm going to help you understand just how much you hurt us in a way I hope that you'll always remember. And so she pulled out a little switch and she gave it to her son. He was afraid what was going to happen next. Then he, She gave him the switch and she said, now I'm going to lay over the bed and I want you to switch my legs. I want you to spank me. He said, no mom, I'm not going to do that. She said, yep, you are because I want to show you how much you hurt mom and dad and how much you hurt Jesus. And so finally he relented and he gave one switch and tears filled her eyes, and then he just threw it down, and they hugged, and he said, Mom, I'm so sorry. I don't want to hurt you, and she put her arms around her little son, and she said, Son, you do hurt me every hour by your selfishness, and you hurt others by your disobedience and hurt God, and he hurt more than any spanking could ever do. She said, Why don't we, right now, why don't you ask Jesus to cleanse you and forgive you and let's move on from this. And so he did. In fact, that very moment he accepted Jesus as his Savior. He said, Jesus, I'm so sorry and I ask you to wash away all my sins. She prayed with him and she said, son, always remember this. Your disobedience doesn't hurt just you. It hurts so many other people. And that wise correcting mom taught this great lesson. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are... we hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from god's word today you can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with jesus christ at www.thehomechurch.net from all of us here at the home church in lodi california thank you for joining us